Okay, you can be opening up your Bibles to uh, the book of Colossians. Uh, we've been studying the last few weeks in the letter to the church at Colossae, and uh, we'll be in chapter 3 today. And what we talked about last week in the first part of that third chapter was some admonitions that Paul gave to those who were at the church in Colossae. Remember in the first chapter, we, he was commending them, right? He was saying, I have heard about your steadfast faith. I've heard about your great love. And we, and, we, and we glean from that that Paul probably did not himself in the flesh establish this congregation, establish this church in Colossae, that it was probably done through Epaphras, whom he heard about the church there through, through as he, he's mentioned as his fellow prisoner in the faith. So he doesn't necessarily personally know these folks, but he knows them, right? He knows them because they were brothers and sisters in the cause. They have been washed, they have been raised to newness of life, which he said. He reread about that, right? And so in chapter 3, now he's admonishing them. And, and we glean some things from that, and we'll read that in a second. But one thing I want to point out is even though we've been washed, even though we've been cleansed, right? We need to be admonished from time to time, right? We need to be reminded. And there's some things that Paul reminds them of. Let's go back and read, beginning in verse 1 in Colossians chapter 3. He says, If then you were raised with Christ, and there you go. So he's saying, you were raised with Christ. You, you are a Christian. You are saved. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the section where we might phrase, he's telling them to seek the heavenly. Seek the heavenly, those things that are above. Then verse 5, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. He's saying, slay the earthly. Remove the earthly things, the worldly things. We've talked about that a lot, right? We as Christians, when we are raised to newness of life, have been set apart for good works. We're no longer of the world. We are of the kingdom. We have to live in the world. We have to deal with the world. We are to speak the truth to the world, spread the gospel, the good news, but we're not of the world. We're separated from that. And he's saying, put these things off. Slay the earthly. Remove these things from yourselves. And then in verse 10 he says, and <coughs> well, let's go back to verse nine. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. And he's telling them to put off the earthly, put on the Christly. And that, sex, that last section you might say, he's, the theme is to strengthen the Christly. Put on things that are of heaven, heavenly things, things from above. And then he's going to continue that in verse 12, continue that theme uh, of a perspective of, kind of, what, of what we are to put on and what we are to put off. 
interesting phrases that he uses, right? <coughs> he, as we examine further and beginning in verse 12, we're going we're to see things from a perspective of what should a Christian's apparel be, right? What should we be putting on? And I'm not talking about clothing. I know you might get that from the title, but that's not what we're talking about. It's the, phys it's the mental, the emotional things. We're going to talk about that. Let's begin in verse 12 there. He says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, you see, you are all these things. You've been raised in newness of life. You are the elect of God. You are holy. You've been set apart, been sanctified, and you're beloved. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All right. He continues this idea of putting on things, putting off things, putting on things, and he's telling them what to put on. That first section, uh, the first two verses there, there are about eight virtues that he lists here that they are to put on. The first two deal with how we are to treat others. He's telling those in Colossae to have tender mercies. And the Greek word actually means bowels. <laughs> the word is like splanknon or something like that. It actually means bowels, bowels of mercies, you might say, in the Greek. And what that meant was in the, the Greeks considered the bowels, the, the, uh, the bowels of the body to be where the, the tender emotions were, the, the passionate moments, emotions would be. That's, the bowels were regarded, to the, actually to the Hebrews, as the seat of these affections, tender affections, kindness, benevolence, compassion. And so that's what he's referring to here. From your bowels you are to be kind. From your bowels, you are to give tender mercies. Be kind. Be compassionate. Be loving, benevolent. All these things. And of course, the second word there is kindness, which we know what kindness is. It's to be benevolent to each other. It's to be kind, not mean, not having malice toward one another. We are to be compassionate, and we are to uh, live with a heart of compassion for one another, right? The next two deal with the state of the mind which we are to possess. Humility, having an humble opinion of oneself, a deep sense of one's smallness, right? A deep sense of one's littleness, of, of one's not really matteringness, you might say, right? Uh, modesty, humility. Are you humble? Are you an humble person? It's easy to get caught up in what we want, right? Who we are. And it's, it's great when, when people say things nice about us, right? It builds you up, it puffs you up a little bit. But he's saying you should be humble. You should be, have a, a sense of humility. You should have a mind, mindset that's not puffed up, not conceited, not a great ego, right? We have a lot of folks around us who have great egos, right? Uh, probably some right here in this room. But we need to put on humility, a mindset, right? A mindset that's small meekness we think of meekness as what gentleness right kindness is involved there too 
uh, I've heard it referred to as, as uh, being uh, humble with strength, you know, strength, but, but humble, being strong, but humble. Uh, a meekness, a meekness about us. Willing to stand up for what's right, perhaps, but not lording it over people. Not being one who goes and pounds on somebody and says, you're, you're wrong or you're doing this wrong. You know, that humility comes in there to play, right? We're having a mind of meekness. These verses also relate to how we should act when mistreated, right? Have you ever been mistreated? Probably by a family member, right? Probably at some point you had a family member that you felt like mistreated you. Maybe they didn't, but you did. Perhaps you had a friend that did you wrong or, or a boss at work that didn't give you something that you thought you deserved, right? Long-suffering, we are to be long-suffering, patient. We are to have forbearance. We are to for, have forbearance. Slowness in avenging a wrong. Remember we talked about that a little bit last week. As Christians, as raised to newness of life, as being part of the kingdom, not of the world, we are to put off things of the world. Part of that means act, acting on wrongdoing, acting on revenge. That's, that's tough to do, right? When you've been wronged, man, that's tough to not want to go and get your revenge or not want to chew somebody out because they did you wrong. I, I've been there. I know how that can be. But he's saying, be long-suffering, forbearing, slowness to avenging, bearing with one another. The word bearing meaning to, to undergo uh, to, uh, a, a length of time where we're willing to endure something, right? We're willing to give someone the opportunity, to maybe give them the doubt, maybe give them the benefit of the doubt, right? We're saying, okay, maybe there's something else going on there that I don't know about that perhaps... I shouldn't just go jump on them because they, did, they told me something wrong or they said something about me. Maybe there's some other things going on there, right? And out of love, if we're part of the kingdom, if we know where we're going, then what difference does it make, you know? Sure, you need to talk to someone, perhaps. You might need to correct a wrong. There's nothing wrong with that, and that's, that's to be done. That's scriptural. But doing it out of love, forbearance, long-suffering, bearing one another, could be something else going on there, right? Sometimes that we don't know about that we might need to make sure we don't just blast someone for doing us wrong. Forgiving one another. Oh, there is that one too. Forgiving one another. Why? He says right there. Because Christ forgave you. And that's the crux of it, the crux of it, right? That's the crux. We've been forgiven. We've been raised anew. We're part of the kingdom, set apart from the world. We're not of the world. We need to be forgiving because of what Christ has done for us, has given us the opportunity to have eternal life. We have hope now, right? We have life. As we read when we studied John, you can have abundant life in this world. Then what does it, difference does it make if someone's done you wrong? So what? Yeah, maybe it puts you off. Maybe you don't get the promotion. Maybe you didn't get the raise at work. Maybe your brother or your sister chewed you out because you didn't bring the turkey to Thanksgiving. I don't know. What difference does it really make in the end? Right? Forgiving one another. Being willing to do what Christ did for us. That's a tough thing to do, right? That's a hard thing to do when you've been done wrong. What's at the seat of all of it? What is really the one thing 
that helps us to do this. He says it right there. The final virtue, love. Love. True agape love. Agape is the Greek term meaning I, I love you so much I'd be willing to die for you. That you hopefully have for one another, for your spouse, for your children, right? He, you can still say that. Yeah, I'd die for my child. But would you die for each and every person in here? That's a little tougher to answer, isn't it? But if you know where you're going, if you have that hope, what difference does it really make? Just saying. This is described by Paul as the bond of affection, the perfect tie that binds all these other virtues together. He's saying these are virtues. These are characteristics of Jesus Christ. This is the character of Christ. And so, if these are the qualities of Christ, shouldn't we be putting them on? We are trying to be like Christ, right? We are disciples. We are followers of Jesus Christ. If these are his characteristics, then we need to be putting them on as well. Aren't these the qualities of Christ that, that would make you, that make you love him? I mean, of course, we love him because of what he did for us, but we also love him because he was kind. He was forbearing. He was long-suffering. He forgave us. He loved us. Still does. Those are things that we should be putting on, the characteristics of Jesus Christ. And that's the actual very idea in verse 10 when he says, to put on the new man who was renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. We are to be trying to be like his image, trying to be like him, his life. Wouldn't it be wonderful, though, if we could be more successful in doing this, right? And putting on the characteristics of Christ. Think of the churches that might have been spared division because of this. You don't have to raise your hand, but have any of you been part of a church that had a split? I'm sure some of you have. Perhaps if some of the folks there had had a more loving, long-suffering, forgiving mindset, forgiving heart, that might not have happened, right? Think of those things. Usually, when families or when churches have these conflicts, it's probably because someone is not being like Christ. Someone is not trying to put on those characteristics of Christ. It begins with seeking the heavenly. We just read that in the first part of chapter 3. And slaying the earthly, putting the things, putting the things of the world off. And we're going to stretch Paul's uh, metaphor here of putting things on a little farther, probably a little farther than he did, beginning in verse 15. He says, the peace of God... What does he mean? Let's go back and read it. And he says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Turn over to Ephesians real quick, and let's, let's look at a couple of verses from there. Ephesians chapter 2. <clears throat> and let's read what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished it in his flesh, the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinance, ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Now what's he talking about there necessarily? Of course, he's, he's referring to the old law there, how it was put to death, and because of that, he made peace. Because of his death on the cross, we are washed 
we no longer have the burden of living out the law. We have the blood of Christ to wash us when we fail, when we fail the law. That enmity now is gone. We have peace, the peace of God. Turn over to chapter 4 there and see what he says there in verse, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Ephesians 4. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, and just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. You see, we need to be diligent to keep the unity. We need to be diligent to keep that spirit of the bond of peace, the peace of God. Jesus came to bring peace. That was part of it. A peace in our hearts that we can have because we now have forgiveness. We now have hope. We no longer have to keep the law perfectly. We have a willing Father who loved us so much that he sent his Son to die for us that we might be able to live eternally with him. Generally, where there's contention and strife, it tends to be among the members of the body, isn't it? Sometimes that happens. Uh, I'll just tell you, couple of you guys in here have been in elders meetings before most of you haven't and I'll tell you there are times when it can get a little tense in an elders meeting all right I'll just tell you that I'm not going to get into any details but it happens and that one thing is something that each and every man in an elders meeting needs to make sure that they are careful with right not just Ignoring that bond of peace that they have together. Ignoring that bond of unity, right? You're not, we don't agree on everything. It just doesn't happen. When you have seven, eight, nine, ten men together, they're not going to agree on everything. And so you have to be careful how you deal with one another. There has to be a bond of peace that's a per, uh, pervasive in that room. All right? Pervasive as you're together. So that's not only in elders. That's with everyone, right? We are people... We are doers, right? We are people of service. And to do that, we'd be, we need to be together at times. And there are things we have to do together. And there are plans we have to make. Decisions have to be made. And sometimes we don't agree with each other. But we have to keep that bond of peace, that bond of unity, when these things are going on. So, Paul says this. He says, keeping that bond of peace, letting the peace of God rule in your hearts, and it must start with setting our minds on things above. That's how it works. We set our minds on the heavenly, therefore we have that peace in our hearts. <clears throat> in other words, this passage is kind of looking back to, to the first three the verses of Colossians there and saying, if you're seeking the heavenly, then you will have that bond of peace. Turn over to Romans, Romans chapter 8 again, which we read last week. I want to look at a couple of verses there again. It says, Romans 8, and we're going to look at verse 5. <clears throat> He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. If we're seeking the heavenly things, putting off the earthly things, we have peace. 
keeping the things of the Spirit. How do we do this? I know you're probably saying, what does that mean to seek the heavenly, right? What's that mean to seek those things above? Let's turn over to Philippians chapter 4 and let's see what he said there. Beginning in verse 6, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then listen to this verse. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That's how you do it. That's how you set your mind on things above. Being in thankful prayer. And I'll add to that being in the Word, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And being of service. All those things. That's how you set your mind on things above. And because of that, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He just said it right there. That's how it's done. That's how you get that peace. He tells us to be thankful. He makes that connection between prayer and peace of God more clearly in this passage. Again, wouldn't it be wonderful if more churches and families of all professing Christians would adorn themselves with these qualities, right? characteristics of Christ and the peace of God. But there's a little bit more we need to add to that, right? And I just mentioned that. In verse 16, he talks about that, the word of Christ. In Colossians, uh, in Colossians 3 there, verse 16, he says, <clears throat> he says what? He says, let the word, go back, let the word of Christ dwell on you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You see, we are to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. Well, what's that mean exactly? That is, the Word is to live, to abide, to have course in our lives. You see, we're not just to be going along, just traveling along in our lives, walking along, not you know, just whatever comes next, comes next, whatever happens. We are to have his word in our hearts. How do we do that? Well, you got to be in the word, right? And not just on Sunday morning in class time. It needs to be something that you dwell on daily. It should be in your heart. It should be something that's guiding you in your daily walk. It's possible for someone to read the Word too, right? And, and understand it. And, and glean things from it, right? And know some things about the Word. I mean, the world knows things about the Word, right? But if you're not putting it into practice, what good is it doing you? Right? I've had a, I've had a pretty long career in, in, in uh, computers, programmer, and I've had a lot of times where I had to do some training. I went to college, had some training to do along the way. And sometimes in that training, that teacher's talking about something, and it's going, whoo, right over my head. I have no idea what he's talking about. You know, you probably had some similar situations like that. Until you get in there and start doing something then. Oh, I, I got this exercise I got to do. Okay, now, oh, that's what he was talking about. Now I get it. You got to do the work. That's how I learn. I learn better doing stuff than hearing it. 
Like you can hear things and understand it, right? But until you do it, you don't have that full understanding. You don't have that full peace of knowing what to do. And then when I get that call at 2 a.m. in the morning, because the system's down, I can say, oh, we'll do this and do that. Do this, that'll fix it. Because I've done it. I know it. I have that peace. Understanding. See how that works? <clears throat> to truly have the word dwell in us, we must obey it. Turn over to James. This is a fabulous passage. I know you know it. Let's turn to James 1 real quick and read the last few verses of that. <clears throat> you see, we're not to be hearers only. James 1, 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. Now think about that. Go on and look at yourself in a mirror. For he observes himself, then goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Why? Because he's not doing it. He can see himself in the mirror. He can understand who that is. But then he walks away and he forgets because he's not doing anything. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. It's just like your work, just like when you're in school and you're learning something, you got to do, you got to do the exercises, you know, you got to work it out to really and truly understand it and know it and have that peace and that understanding, right? Interesting concept, right? We should have the word dwell in us richly. But I want you to notice something else that he mentions there. He says a few more verses, in the next couple of verses, he says some other things. He says, we let the word dwell in you richly. And this happens when we add our study of the word, right? We begin to have the word dwell in us richly. And as we do things, we begin to have that mindset of peace, that heart of peace, that peace of God. But then he says something else. Let's go back over there and see what he said. He says, have that word of Christ dwell on you richly in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. You see, perhaps what he's saying there is, you've got to have this word dwelling in you richly in your mind, but also in your heart. It's not just a mindset. It's something that's in your heart that we admonish among singing praising, having in spiritual songs, hymns, praises. And so if that's true, there's more to it than just the mindset, right? Yeah, we need to be doers. We need to be having that word wellness ritual. We need to be studiers. We need to be pray, prayer warriors. But we also worship him. We praise him and worship. We do things to worship him. And part of that is admonishing each other in songs and spiritual songs and hymns. For this to happen, of course, we need to sing properly, right? In our singing, we need to be able to understand what we're singing, right? How else are you going to have that ability for the Word to dwell in you richly in your mind and in your heart? We need to understand that. We need to have proper motions and be involved in that worship. I'm talking about singing here, but I, but I mean 
all of worship, when we're together and we're worshiping the Lord, we're doing this in practice here, but for the future too, right? Turn over to Revelation. This is not in your outline, but I want to mention a few things about some scenes we see in the book of Revelation. Turn over to uh, chapter 22 first. <clears throat> I want to see what Revelation says about heaven and what it'll be like in heaven, what John is saying as far as what he saw in his vision. Revelation 22, verse 1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. Now, this is a figurative phrase, right? But what he's saying there is the servants are serving him in heaven. We are servants on earth. And why are we doing this? Because of our love for him, because of the peace we have, but also because that's what we're going to be doing in heaven. We're going to be servants. We're going to serve him. What else? Turn over to uh, chapter 19. And let's begin reading in verse 1. He says, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged, her, the, avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters, as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the God, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife had made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen and clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now I read that kind of fast. That's very figurative, right? But what are they doing? They're praising God. They're at the supper of the Lamb. They are singing, worshiping God, serving Him in heaven. I heard a song leader and preacher talking to each one time, and the question came up was, well, the song leader said to the preacher, well, when I get to heaven, I got a job, but what are you going to do? Because, you know, won't mean you need to preach in heaven, right? But he has a job, too. We're going to be doing the same thing we're doing now in our worship, singing, praising God, serving Him. And we're going to love it every minute of it because there's going to be no sin, no sorrow, no sickness, just love for the Lamb, love for God. That's a wonderful picture, of course, but it's something we practice here now when we're together. Why do you think He's saying to 
let the word dwell on you richly, admonishing each other in spiritual songs, because that's what we're going to be doing in heaven. We're worshiping here and practicing for heaven. Now think about that for a minute. Doesn't mean that you have to be able to sing like a, I don't know, a sparrow. What, what's the bird that sings really good? Canary, I don't know. But you sing from your heart because you have that peace of God. You set your mind on things that are heavenly, put off things of the earth because you're no longer of the earth. And you're practicing for what we're going to be doing in heaven. Do you have some Sunday mornings when you're worshiping where you don't feel like singing? Your mind, mind's not right. Yeah, we all, we all get those moments. We didn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed. The kids were awful, you know, couldn't get them ready. They were running around, wouldn't put their clothes on, wouldn't eat their breakfast, whatever it was. And we're just not here in the right mindset. But think about that. What difference does it make? We're going to be doing this in heaven. This is what heaven is going to be like. Yeah, I know, we're, we're in the flesh. We have our problems, we have our faults, we have our sickness, we have our issues. But if you're thinking about having that word dwell in you richly in your mind and in your hearts, man, that should make you want to sing out in praise to our God and what he's done for us, shouldn't it? I mean, if you're not enjoying the singing here, Maybe you're not going to enjoy the singing then. Just saying. I know you probably heard that before. But it's true. That's what Paul's saying here. The word should dwell in you richly. It shouldn't be a burden for you to come to worship. You should be wanting to be here with bells on. If you haven't learned the joy of singing, then you're depriving yourself. Right? There's something about that singing that it's good for the soul. I mean, you do it in your car, right? When your favorite song comes on the radio, nobody's around to see you. You start singing, don't you? I know, I know, I've seen you. I do it too. It's good for the soul, right? It lifts you up. You can be having a bad day and you hear your favorite song come on the radio and you start feeling better, don't you? And I'm not saying it's just about the feeling. But that's part of praising God for what he's done. Can you imagine what heaven's going to be like to see all the angels, the heavenly host, sounding like rushing waters, as is mentioned in Revelation there? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know exactly what that's going to sound like, but I know what rushing waters sounds like. I sleep every night with rushing waters on my radio. It puts me to sleep. That's not necessarily the right, right analogy, but it calms me, right? It helps me calm. I have that steady noise. It puts other things out. It helps me focus on sleeping. There's things about that that we don't necessarily understand. But we know it's going to be great. And it's something we're going to be part doing when we get to heaven. Last but not least, and i got to hurry with this one, is the authority of Christ. You mentioned this 17 there, verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This really completes the Christian's apparel. For if you say and do all in the name of the Lord Jesus by his authority, then it is evident that we put on the Lord in our living. Sadly, many fail to adorn themselves with respect to Christ's authority, right? Many 
will do what they want on their own authority in the name of personal preference. They worship in whatever way they please, not going to the Word to see what God wants us to do. That happens. Don't have time to read it, but Matthew 15, the Lord says, there is such thing as vain worship. There are those who come and do their own thing, and they worship me in vain. Matthew chapter 7, he talks about the fact that not all who say, Lord, Lord, will enter their rest because he never knew them. They did their own thing. They weren't doing the will of God. It's not about what you want to do. It's about what God wishes. Jesus told the woman at the well, right, when she talked about how some say you should worship in Jerusalem, some others say here, he says, God wants two worshipers. He wants to be worshipped, and he wants to be worshipped in truth. We suggested four things to make up the Christian apparel today. The character of the Christ, the peace of God, the word of Christ, and the authority of Christ. <clears throat> All these things are important. We need to be thinking about and apply to our putting on of him. I hope you understand these things. I know they make sense. They're easier to talk about, right, than to put into practice. But remember one thing. Go back to, actually a few things. Go back to verse 12 there. And he says, do these things because, verse 12, therefore as the elect of God, you're the elect of God, therefore that those of you who are holy, you are holy because of what he's done for you. He sets you apart for good works and beloved. He loves you. Because of all these things, and verse 13, because you've been forgiven, you should put on the characteristics of Christ. Seek the heavenly, slay the earthly, and strengthen the Christly. I hope in your prayer life, in your study, and in your service, you're doing all these things. Just like Paul says. Put off the earthly, put on the heavenly. Okay, our time is up. Thanks for being here.